It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, June 23rd, 2023. I'm Kevin Cork. The House Committee on Homeland Security examines just how President Biden's border policy has led to a record number of migrants and fentanyl flowing into the country. And many Republicans are now calling for the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The laws did not change between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, yet the situation along the border has gotten progressively worse. I'm Jared Halpern. Trial dates set and more indictments expected, but legal troubles seem to be no trouble at all for former President Trump's re-election campaign. Look, I, I think it proves the point that what do most Republican voters want? They want Donald Trump to be the nominee again. They don't want an imitator of Trump. They don't want someone who's the anti-Trump. They want Donald Trump as long as he's a candidate for, for the presidency. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From bad to worse, with no end in sight. As how many critics of the Biden administration's border policies sum up the current situation along the U.S. southern border, which has seen the number of illegal crossings soar into the millions and fentanyl deaths rise due to an increase in drug trafficking. The House Committee on Homeland Security held a hearing this week in which they examined just how the president's border policies have impacted the rise of cartel crime. The cartels are still raking in the profits, and migrants are still being smuggled, trafficked, and abused. Our focus today is on the Mexican drug cartels and how they're winning, how they're running wild under Secretary Mayorkas' policies. One thing is clear. The cartels have seized control of our border. Many House Republicans have also called for the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, citing what they call high crimes and misdemeanors. The wrong approach that those on the left are using where they're saying, well, we've always had this issue. It's kind of always been there and there's nothing to see here. Chad Wolf is the former acting secretary of Homeland Security under former President Donald Trump and now heads Wolf Global Advisors. And here's why that's wrong. Uh, by any objective measure, uh, this is as worse as it's ever been. Um, you know, the numbers that we're seeing, the human trafficking, the fentanyl, uh, by any objective measure, this is the worst as it's been. And we're not talking about something that, that surprised the United States and surprised the Border Patrol or surprised, uh, you know, government officials. You know, we saw that during the Trump administration when you, you saw these spontaneous caravans uh, coming out of Central America or Mexico. And so you had to you had to respond to it. That's not what we're seeing today. We're, we're seeing an influx because of specific and deliberate policy decisions made by the Biden administration. The laws did not change uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, yet the situation along the border has gotten progressively worse. And so you have to ask the question, why is that? It's because of certain specific decisions. And so when those on Capitol Hill, particularly those on the right, start sounding the alarm, I think it's correct uh, because the alarm needs to be sound because we're going in a direction that's wrong for the country. And it's a direction that can be changed through policy, not through anything else. Uh, not through resources, but making the right policy decisions, at least in this context and at this moment in time, 
is all the difference in the world. And then, and, and unfortunately, that's that's the difference I see today versus debates that we've had four years ago, or perhaps even even further in the in the in history. Here's the real struggle, I think, for many Americans, and it's one thing for you and I to have a conversation about this. Uh, you've been down to the border. I've been down to the border many, many times. But I think the real frustration for people outside of the Beltway and maybe even those who don't live in those border states is there's this idea that, yes, the Bidens will put out, speaking of the administration, they'll put out a statement. Uh, You may remember it was back in April. They said, hey, listen, we're announcing a slew of criminal charges against top Mexican drug cartel individuals who've been accused of smuggling fentanyl or going after the Sinaloa cartel. So they will put these statements out. You'll have Mayorkas get out and say to congressional lawmakers with a straight face, we are doing our job. We're working on it. And yet the numbers, Chad, don't seem to back up maybe, I guess I would call it a fulsome effort. Am I seeing that in the wrong way? No, I think that's right. I think, look, that this is what the administration will do, and that's why it's critically important. Obviously, Fox covers uh, the situation along the border quite extensively. Um, it's why I talk about it and write about it and been very vocal about it, because I think the American people deserve transparency and the truth. And I think what you're getting from the Biden administration is just a sliver of that. They cherry pick numbers, they cherry pick facts, and they present them to the American people as though this this is everything that you need to know about what's going on. And I'll just give you a for instance. You know, they came out here in the last couple of days with uh, June apprehension numbers or or, sorry, encounter numbers along the border. And it's one hundred and forty four thousand or so. They said that's the number that they continue to to talk about. Um, And they say that's a big reduction. Well, it's actually not, right? And you just go to the DHS website and you click all the filters for all the encounters that are coming into the United States, and it's over 200,000. But what they'll tell the American people is is that the apprehensions along the southern border have decreased. That may have been because they are pushing those individuals to other mechanisms and other manners of coming into the country through parole and other things. So, I think it's important that the American people really understand what's going on. And look, I get it. This immigration context is tough to understand sometimes. Uh But the images, the visuals, and just the the disaster of what is the border, whether it's the southern border or now the northern border is seeing, you know, three, four hundred percent increases in their encounters. And why is that occurring? So I think it's we got to continue to talk about it, because until it gets under control, until Border Patrol is able to breathe that you know it's been 28 months and they're in a crisis i think it's important that people continue to to talk about this before i ask you to take a swing at some possible solutions i want to know if uh, giving credit where credit is due is in order the doj as i mentioned said it had uh, unsealed uh, 28 charges against leaders from the sinaloa cartel uh they they make the argument chad that they are stopping uh massive amounts of drugs they are seizing millions of dollars uh, they say that they're doing the job and they're not getting the credit that they deserve. Critics, by the way, would argue they're really turning a blind eye. They're not doing nearly enough and they're not doing nearly as much as they could have, especially when compared, they would argue, to what was happening, say, during uh, the Trump administration. So would you view that as, okay, giving credit where credit is due, or is this a smokescreen? Well, here's how I would answer that. If um, I'll give you, a, for instance, if 100 people cross the border, and you're catching 10 of them, then you're catching 10 people. 
But mm-hmm. if, you know, 3,000 cross the border and you're catching 300, well, yeah, you're catching more people. You're catching more people because more and more people are coming in numbers that we've never seen before. So that's that's kind of my answer, which is you're exactly right. They tout all their apprehensions and they tout, you know, drugs that they've interdicted. It's because the cartels are pushing more human trafficking and pushing more narcotics across that porous border than they ever have before. So intuitively, you're going to catch more because more is coming over. I would say that they are apprehending or they are interdicting just a sliver of what is actually going on along that border. And they're not doing all that they can because there are are significant policy changes that can be made almost overnight that would reduce that would increase the deterrent, reduce the pull factors and have more accountability. Uh, They know what those are. Um, It's not rocket science. We left a, a pretty good playbook for them at the end of the last administration. You know, from my perspective, they they should rename all of those programs, but just keep them in place because they work. And if they listen to law enforcement officers, they'll tell them that they work. And so that's where I fought this administration. So uh, I'm going to give them credit where credit is due on investigations, whether it's HSI, which is our Homeland Security investigators at the Department of Homeland Security or or FBI or other elements of DOJ, they always do investigations. And so they're gonna continue to do that. But where this administration falls down quite extensively is in bad policy decisions that impact every day of the border. They've got to do something about this, especially the fentanyl uh, problem. We're talking about a drug uh, responsible for over 70,000 deaths a year in this country. And, Chad, you know better than most, it's not just maybe some guy who's strung out and been doing drugs for 25 years. Uh, We're talking about one-time use. You can be blown out. You can be a teenager. Uh, This is a scourge, and it is incredibly frightening. Well, absolutely. Um, not only because of the nature of fentanyl, the you know the uh, the little amount that it actually takes to be very very deadly, which also uh, makes it incredibly easy to have that be smuggled uh, across the border. Um, but again, it's not because Americans uh, are all addicts and we're all consuming fentanyl. It's because the cartels know what they're doing and they're pressing it into other illicit narcotics uh, for a, you know, a cheaper high, more or less. And so this is what's really, really dangerous about it. Um, I mean, you know, if you go back a couple of decades and you had heroin overdoses and addiction and a big heroin, you know, epidemic here, people knew what they were getting into when, when you're doing heroin. The, the really dangerous part about this is people don't even know that they're consuming fentanyl. They have no idea. And for, uh, yeah, I would say the vast majority of, of the overdoses that here recently, and that, that, that's the issue. And it's impacting our youth. And, this, and it's, it all stems from the cartels. It stems from China, which, again, this administration is not bullish on. Uh, the precursors are made there. They ship them to Mexico. The cartels get a hold of them. And it comes across the border. That is the supply chain that we are seeing today. I know it. The Department of Homeland Security knows it. This administration knows it. And there needs to be some definitive action taken. You talk about definitive action. I think there is a sentiment among many on the right, especially among congressional lawmakers, that Alejandro Mayorkas is um, over his skis, as uh, I would uh, 
I would say, having grown up in Colorado. Some have made the argument that he is intentionally ignoring uh, his job. Uh, this is a dereliction of duty. There have been threats that he ought to be impeached. There are others, however, Chad, who feel like that's a bridge too far. But passions are high on both sides of this argument. Where do you land? Well, I'm not going to get into his intentions because only only the secretary knows why he's making certain decisions. So I just look at the facts. I look at the policy decisions that have been made, the results of those policy decisions and the crisis that we continue to be under and have been under almost now for over two years. Um, I know the Department of Homeland Security. I know that you can be in the middle of a crisis and I know how you can turn it around. And you've got to listen to law enforcement officers, but to not to be able to turn around a crisis and the numbers that we're seeing in 28 months, which is their track record, that lends me that that leads me to a couple of conclusions. One, it's intentional. This is exactly what they have designed uh, and they're continuing to execute on it and they really don't want to change it much. Um, and they did this by design. Um, and and I see this day in and day out on decisions that they're, they've made announcements that they make this is not by happenstance they didn't just bumble into this this is this is what they're doing and so in doing that you need to you need to say is this acceptable are we protecting the american people uh or or is the department of homeland security and the decisions they're making to the benefit of illegal aliens and others and i you know i i have my own decisions and i think at this point in time a number of actions that the secretary has taken is unlawful uh, they've been struck down court after court after court. He's not protecting the American people. And I think there needs to be a leadership change at the department. Will it will it change the, the trajectory of this administration? Probably not. But I think it's important to send a signal that the last 28 months is not OK. It's not OK to have this. This isn't uh, a, just a disagreement in policy. This is a disagreement on, on lives being lost. We talked about fentanyl, but we also the sex trafficking, then the human trafficking, all of that, it, it, you're never going to eliminate it, but we have never seen it to the to the level and the extent that we see it today. And I think there needs to be some accountability. And a quick note from here, the nation's capital, the House Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing next week at which Mayorkas is expected to be present and will very likely, as uh, you can imagine, Chad, uh, face a grilling from Republicans over the border crisis. Your former boss made the suggestion that we ought to consider the cartels a major threat to this country and even suggested that maybe we consider engaging them militarily. Um, that's one suggestion I've heard that might stem the flow of fentanyl across our border and perhaps even the human trafficking and other drugs that seem to be making their way without uh, much disruption into places like California and Arizona and Texas. Uh, does that sound like a solid idea? Well, I, you know, obviously I, I've worked for uh, former President Trump, so I, I, I'm not going to pretend to know exactly what he's thinking uh, when he makes these statements, but I know in the context how he intends them. Um, and so whether you're talking about the use of military force, or whether you're talking about a foreign terrorist designation, uh, which has been talked about, I believe he would use all of these for leverage uh, over the Mexican government to get them to do more, to get them to go to areas they're uncomfortable with, that they wouldn't go there on their own. But, and we, and we saw that, right, during the, the, the Trump administration in which 
they wanted nothing to do with remain in Mexico or what we call the migrant protection protocols. I was at DHS when we negotiated this and for almost over a year, they wouldn't talk to us about this, but President Trump got involved, started talking about tariffs on Mexican goods, and guess what? They decided to agree to remain in Mexico. Um, and so it's talking about leverage and, and making sure that um, you know the Mexican government understands that U.S. leadership from either party is willing to take some difficult decisions and actions to protect their uh, citizenry, I think is critically important. And so whether President Trump was or wasn't going to put tariffs on a lot of Mexican goods uh, is is beyond is regardless. It, it got an outcome that we needed that was good for the American people. And so when I hear President Biden in this White House take off the table the use of military force or say that they have no there's no reason to designate them as foreign terrorist organizations, You've now lost the leverage. You've taken it off the table and you have signaled to the Mexican government that it's business as usual, that you're going to talk to them, you know, in foreign policy speak. But at the end of the day, we're not going to really hold them accountable. And so when I hear, you know, questions saying, hey, should we do this and should we do that? I think all options should be on the table because I think uh, we are in an unprecedented situation which calls for some really tough decisions. The last one I have for you is the obvious one. Uh, were your boss to win again in 2024 and assume the office once again of the presidency in 2025, would you work for him again in a similar capacity? So, uh, you know, it was, it was a pleasure to work for President Trump. Absolutely. Um, I would I, you know, love the mission of the Department of Homeland Security um, and certainly would entertain any notion of that. So um, I think he... He cut through a lot of noise. Uh, he able he enabled us to make some quick decisions and some actions that would otherwise take almost months or years to make. So, uh, enjoyed working for him immensely, uh, and certainly would entertain any any notion to do so in the future. Always great to have you with us. We appreciate your conversation, your thoughtfulness, uh, Chad Wolf. Be well. All right. Thank you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Save the date for May 20th, 2024. That's the day Judge Eileen Cannon has set for the start of a first-of-its-kind federal trial in the case of former President Trump's handling of classified documents. Prosecutors wanted that trial to start sooner, by mid-December. Trump's attorneys say the former president can't get a fair trial while he's running for president and ask the judge for a delay until after next year's election. Instead, barring any other delay, the frontrunner for the Republican nomination will begin to face a jury of his peers after many Republican voters have started their caucuses and primaries. In fact, May is weeks after Super Tuesday and less than two months before the start of the Republican National Convention officially will crown the party's nominee. But it may not be the first trial for the former president. He's facing state charges in Manhattan connected to hush money payments. That trial is currently slated to start in March. And this week, former President Trump revealed on his social media page
Judge. He's been sent a letter from special counsel Jack Smith that he's a target of a separate investigation related to actions taken after the 2020 election in the January 6th Capitol riot. Such a letter is often a sign of an imminent indictment. And if you're thinking all of these trials, both civil and criminal, are enough to derail any other campaign, you are not alone. But in the case of the former president, it only seems to strengthen his primary campaign. Fox News Radio's political analyst Josh Crossauer says it's almost ripped from a Hollywood script. So I, I think the best way of thinking about how Donald Trump is viewed by the Republican Party, especially in light of all these indictments to potentially by Jack Smith, is to think about Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Catch Me If You Can, uh, Frank Abagnale, literally running as sort of the, the anti-hero running from the feds, right? And he, everyone was rooting for Leonardo DiCaprio's character, even though he was the bad guy. He was the guy breaking breaking the law. And look, this is not true of the overall public, but Republicans mm-hmm. sort of view Donald Trump as their guy, like the guy who um, is, is, as he says, like fighting for kind of their their uh, you know uh, uh, you know he's he's fighting for people who. People yeah. who who, who, uh, I mean, because he, what Trump has said is I'm the person standing between you and right. them. Yeah, I mean, that, that Trump is saying he's the guy who's fighting for the little guy and fighting for the guy who is, uh, you know, facing challenges uh, and, and he's representing them. And that's what you see in the polls where he not only continues to lead the Republican presidential primary field, but he's actually if you look at the polling, he's actually gained ground since the federal indictment by Jack Smith. Among, at least among Republican primary voters. So I don't think that another indictment is going to markedly change Donald Trump's political fortunes. Look, I think it doesn't help him in a general election, uh, but I, unless he's you know physically like in jail uh, before the November election, if he's the nominee, like I, I have a hard time seeing how he doesn't win this Republican nomination. Is that the argument that other Republicans in this race are going to have to try and press upon that, you know, they can say that they don't think this is fair and that this is political and, you know, whatever it is, but that it is untenable to win a general election? Is that what they have to convince Republican voters of? That was the initial argument by many Republicans running against Donald Trump. I mean, I can't remember how many times someone like Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, would go on TV and say, there's no way Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. He can't get elected. And yet not only does he gain ground in the Republican primary field, but he also is running competitively against Joe Biden, despite the baggage and the legal issues that he's facing. So, look, I, I, I think that a lot like Ron DeSantis, I think, and other Republicans in that space are almost running and messaging and talking about Trump as if their only hope or their best hope is that Donald Trump has to pull out of the race because of all his legal problems. It's not that mm-hmm. you know, Ron DeSantis gave an interview this week on CNN where he basically defended Donald Trump, who is mm-hmm. his leading rival mm-hmm. for the Republican nomination. When does that happen? When are you in the middle of a heated campaign and you're yeah. defending your leading rival? But I think the thinking, if there is thinking going on in the DeSantis camp, it's that there's a sense that maybe Donald Trump will have to withdraw from the race at some point. And if that happens, then DeSantis would be best positioned to win over those Trump voters. Do you see a scenario in which Donald Trump willingly leaves this race? I don't. The only way I see Trump leaving the race is if he is convicted of a crime and is sentenced. You know, that's a, but, I mean, something like that. I mean, even looking at like, tri- I mean, that's way into the future. Yeah. And look, there's going to I mean, we're Federal a long way off. Prosecutions even... last a long time. Exactly, Jared. I mean, it takes a long time for, for the legal process to to wind itself 
up um, uh, and you're facing a lot of different venues for different charges. Yeah. I, look, I think Trump's lawyers would probably tell him that this is, you know, what his strategy politically is damaging to his legal case. It makes it more, it does make him more likely to face jail time or serious punishment. He probably makes more public comments than most defense attorneys are comfortable <laughs> with. But I mean, that's, this but is that, a, that's I mean, the unique I mean, position I, that he is in, though. He is running for president. He is the presumptive Republican nominee, certainly the front runner for the Republican nomination. And it seems like the argument, because, I, I, you know, you talk about DeSantis. I heard Nikki Haley this week say as well that, you know, it's a distraction. We can't win elections if we're talking about the past. We have to have talk about the future. Candidates have been saying this for months now. Look, none of the arguments that other Republicans are using, including Chris Christie, who is running straight at Donald Trump. And He's taken a, a different tack, to be sure. But none of those strategies, whether it's going at Donald Trump directly, whether it's talking about electability, whether it's talking about yeah. focusing on the future instead of the past, none of these uh, tactics by different candidates have really worked. And look, I, I, I think it, it proves the point that what do most Republican voters want? They want Donald Trump to be the nominee again. They don't want an imitator of Trump. They don't want someone who's the anti-Trump. They want Donald Trump as long as he's a candidate for, for the presidency. The other thing that I hear from a, a lot of conservative Republicans and even mainstream Republicans who, you know, are cognizant of their record in recent presidential elections have said that, you know, they've pushed the electability candidate before and it didn't work. They mentioned Mitt Romney. They mentioned John McCain. You go back to the 90s as well. Is that a fair argument? I actually think the voters are right in dismissing these electability arguments, mm -hmm. because at least when it comes to Ron, De Ron DeSantis is, a, is, a, is the Republican that's almost as well known as Donald Trump. And yeah. when you look at a lot of polls, many of them show Donald Trump doing just as well as Ron DeSantis in a head to head matchup against President Biden. If you're just look, one of these you know, voters who's just looking at the polls that are out there and, and trying to figure out who, who's got a better chance of winning based on the numbers, you wouldn't find an obvious case for Ron DeSantis just based on the head-to-head -head polling between the two Republicans against Biden. So I, I think it's hard to make that case when even the polling doesn't show that Ron DeSantis is any more on paper electable than, than Donald Trump. So you and I are going to be in Milwaukee, uh, what, about a month? For this first debate, we will be sightseeing the bronze fawns. Just make sure that's on your itinerary before we watch. Have you seen it? It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> and do, do these attacks or these lines of criticism from Republicans, could they land differently in a debate format, assuming that everybody's there, assuming that the former president is there and Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, like to be able to, to sort of pose these criticisms to Trump himself. Does that change anything in your mind? Well, I think the first question is, is Donald Trump even going to be at that first? I hope sure. he is. I, I think for democracy's sake, you know, for a really healthy debate, it, it'll be good to see Donald Trump debate his opponents. But that's not a given right now. So I think that's the first uh, question. Uh, he, he says he has a big lead and doesn't need a debate. So um, we'll see what he decides to do. You know, if he is there, the Republican that's best positioned to make the case directly to his face and who's been doing it on TV for quite a bit of time now is Chris Christie. But the problem with Chris Christie is he doesn't, you know, even if he is able to consolidate the people who hate Trump the most, that's not enough to get probably get not. Victory. Yeah, it's not enough to win yeah. a Republican nomination. It's going to disqualify you from the Republican nomination. So you might have the best moment on the debate stage, but it, in a Republican primary, that's not how you're going to win. So and, and I don't think frankly, the other candidates are really, they really have the skill set to directly take on Donald Trump in a direct way, in a 
not a passive aggressive way that we've seen so often from a lot of other candidates. Do trial dates or court appearances, anything like that? I mean, those have almost become quasi campaign events for for the former president, too. Well, I mean, look, that what, what happened, Ron DeSantis gave his first interview, one of his few interviews, uh, mm-hmm. you know, on cable news and. It got overshadowed by Donald Trump uh, <laughs> because really, he I mean, because he put out on Truth Social this like he he talked about it himself. Like we've not actually know, had confirmation well, but, from yeah. the special counsel that this letter went out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the point. Anything Trump says immediately, even if it, even if we don't confirm it yet, it, it immediately yeah. becomes no, you're right. a yeah. spectacle. And that that is his biggest advantage. I mean, he controls <laughs> the news cycle. He he once again is the center of media attention as long as he's going to be the front runner. And I don't see the dynamic changing at all into 2024. Let me talk about another uh, dynamic in this race, and that was uh, this past week's event. No labels putting together, putting together Joe Manchin and John Huntsman, a Democrat and a Republican, moderates both in a room together talking about how we don't want another Trump Biden election. Is this the ticket that no labels has long been been planning? And if so, what's the path? So the um, Huntsman Mansion event in New Hampshire is something of an illustration. Well, that's a question, of, too, right? Is it Mansion Huntsman or uh, Huntsman Yeah, well, whatever, Manchin. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, whatever that's, order. That, that's an interesting question. In yeah, I mean, itself, Manchin I is probably be- better suited to be, to be the nominee, <laughs> but they are moderates in, within their parties. Yes. But they also disagree on a lot of really big issues, most importantly, energy. Uh, you know, John Huntsman yeah. was one of the first Republicans to be talking about clean energy, green energy. Yeah. You know, he was a, he, I remember interviewing yeah. him when he ran for president all about you know green energy and environmentalism joe manchin is in a state that requires coal and 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 traditional hydrocarbons to to get his state's economy going so that actually came up at the no labels event when they both agreed that they disagree on a big issue (laughs) Um, and that's the problem no labels faces because a lot of people call themselves independents they don't like the direction that the major Mm -hmm. uh, the two major parties are going but when it actually comes to issues that they may find that even if you're both independent, you may disagree on, on more issues than you agree on. And look, I there's a moment that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is, you know, was testifying on Capitol mm-hmm. Hill this week. You know, he he is a Democrat who has a famous family name who's now viewed much more favorably by Republicans than Democrats. Yes. And he's certainly yes. made a very fair share of, you know, uh, kind of weird comments to put it mildly. But he is, the, I mean, that kind of candidate, that someone like that is a more likely uh, independent, someone who appeals to low information voters who don't watch the news, who don't trust institutions, who don't trust the political establishment in both parties. That's a much more uh, common characteristic of those mm. who define themselves as independents than sort of the the, the John Huntsman type of voters who, uh, you know, ultimately didn't support him when he ran for president <laughs> himself in 2012. So, I mean, it brings out a couple of questions. One, let's just like look historically at third parties. There's not a huge, at least in the last century, there's not a big um, sort of third party pull. I, I guess the, the most successful story is, is H. Ross Perot, right? Um, who, I guess, probably siphoned more votes away from the Republican George H.W. Bush than the Democrat uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, is there kind of a thinking about what a no labels kind of candidacy would do to that vote? Like who who would it siphon votes from? Yeah, I mean, if that's, I think... the, if that's the right way to kind of phrase it, or, or I guess yeah. which campaign would be more concerned or alarmed at a third party run? Yeah, I mean, if it's Biden versus Trump, I, I, Trump anti-Trump voters are like comfortable voting for Biden. I, I think it's pretty clear, and 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 many Democrats 
are uncomfortable because of Biden's age. And I think there are more Democrats that would either stay home or would consider not voting for Biden, but voting for a left wing alternative on the, in the case of younger voters and, and progressives or voting for someone who's a third party option who's younger. Trump's base is rock solid. I mean, there's certainly some people who used to be Republicans, sure. who used to vote for Republicans that um, are disenchanted with Donald Trump. But the polling suggests that among people who identify strongly as Republicans now, Trump is very popular. And Biden actually has a lot of softness with his coalition, with a lot of younger voters and uh, voters worried about his age and health. That's a real, real concern. So that's why, I mean, look, I think that alone, I mean, and, and Jared, by the way, No Labels has started to call their um, marketing pitch as something of an insurance policy. They've used the word insurance policy. Yeah for the 2024 election, I think that's a more effective argument that, the, you know, I, I think they rub a lot of people the wrong way when they argue that Biden is, is too liberal. I think a lot of voters think Biden is actually pretty much in the middle of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a much more effective argument. And, and it gets it's harder to really attack them when you say, well, we, we just want a backup for if Biden has an issue health wise or age wise. That's a more compelling argument that could actually peel off some voters. So, I mean, is that strategy then like an insurance policy against Trump becoming president? I mean, I I guess I don't understand kind of what that means, because when you think about running a campaign and an insurance policy or whatever, like running for president and having an apparatus that gets on the ballot in all of these states takes so much forward planning. Right. So what's your sense of what do they mean by by that insurance policy? Well, look, I I think they they see the polls that show uh, voters having a lot of worries about whether Biden is really able to serve at age 86 at the end of a second Mm -hmm. term. Uh, So I think they're responding to the the political data. Um, Now, you're right. It doesn't I mean, (laughs) if you're running, you're running. Right. I mean, it's it's no such thing as an insurance policy in presidential (laughs) politics. No, because you don't control your own. I mean, like you may not have to you know, you may never have a situation where Biden, you know, Biden may run. And, and then what do you do in, in that scenario when you have a nominee or you have a candidate mm-hmm. in, in the third party space? Uh, so, like, it's nice in theory. In practice, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. But look, I, I think you, you could draw up a scenario where it, let's say Biden doesn't isn't able to run for a second term and. You have Joe Manchin waiting in the wings already, you know, as, as a nominee. <laughs> sure. Well, may, maybe Joe Manchin would actually have an advantage over anyone else that the Democrats would put up, and who is not nearly as well known because it would take okay. it takes time to build the campaign. It takes time to get recognized. So, what is the? That's the maybe that's the maybe that's the play where it's not in your control, <laughs> but they are an insurance policy, and they hope that Biden doesn't run again, and maybe someone like a Joe Manchin would would benefit in that scenario. You know, you and I have both seen poll after poll after poll that show pretty broad disapproval of a rematch between Biden and Trump. Um, And at the same time, it looks like that's who both parties are going to nominate and put forward. Does that create a space for even if it's not no label, somebody else? uh, I mean, you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk about some of these more moderate Republican governors, Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan or, you know, Chris Sununu is not running for governor again. Does I mean, is there a space for something like that? And what does it take to I mean, ballot access is a real issue in a lot of states, isn't it? It is. And look, I mean, no labels has, uh, I think, had some success in some key battleground states like Arizona mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, some 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 real Colorado competitive states that that 
where they could actually have an impact. But yeah, like ballot access is not easy. And that's one of the big hurdles that no labels uh, would have to uh, overcome. But they do have a lot of money and, and they do have they've spent a lot of time researching what it takes to get on the ballot in as many states as possible. And look, the the worry, uh, especially among Democrats, is that they play a, spo- a spoiler role and that the, mm-hmm. the polling shows they probably couldn't get more than, you know, single digits in the polls. But that that would be disproportionately taken away from President mm-hmm. Biden, uh, not not Donald Trump, and that's that. And this in a close competitive presidential election that could make all the difference in the world. We've seen that, right? What was the the difference in green? Was it the green Nadler votes in two thousand that a lot of Gore people thought were were decisive enough to to change the outcome in that race? Well, and Cornell West is running, uh, looking to run That's in the right. Green Party, and that that that, that he, you may be hearing more worries about Cornell West as we get closer to November. He, he may be actually be the bigger threat because the Green Party does have ballot access, and they mm-hmm. he does have a little bit of a following uh, uh, among different constituencies among the, on the left wing of the party. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Cornell West might be just as much of a problem for the Democrats and Joe Biden as as any no labels candidate. I will say this. There is just so much uncertainty and turbulence in this 2024 race, and we are still months away from uh, even the first primary and caucus vote. So um, it is going to be a fascinating several months for you and I. I look forward to uh, having many more of these chats and getting together in person for a lot of these big events coming up, including next month's debate that you'll hear right here on uh, these Fox News radio stations. Uh, Josh Crossauer, a pleasure as always. Thanks, Jared. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, Congress has a few more days to finish up its to-do list before the August recess, including solving the Senate stalemate on hundreds of military promotions. And who is in and who is falling short? Just a few weeks from the first Republican presidential debate. We'll take a look at the lineup card. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.